Okay, let's uh, return to our seats now. We've got uh, quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. Um, I'm going to try to introduce to you a book that needs unlocking for a lot of us. I know I did. Um, the book of Isaiah. This is one of the books that is very, very mess- messianic. It's, it's got a ton of Christ-centered prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah interlaced throughout this book. But I thought instead of just opening up Jesus' prophecies to you, I would want to open up the whole book to you because to be able to see why Jesus is so important to the people Isaiah was prophesying to, why he was so crucial, you've got to understand the times that were going on in the background of Isaiah. We're, as I said, we're five weeks away from Christmas, and so I'm opening up an Advent series. Advent, which is Adventus, um, from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. It's the idea that the Hebrew children were waiting for the coming of Messiah. And just like the Hebrew children were waiting for the Messiah to come, the servant king, we are waiting for our King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come for second Advent. And so the Christmas season reminds us to be awaiting Jesus' return. The word Adventus is also used um, as in the Greek New Testament for the word parousia, which is appearing. It's the idea that we're awaiting Jesus' appearance. Are you waiting for Jesus to return? We should be. We're either sort of hardwired in our flesh or in unbelief. We're hardwired to do a works-based religion where we strive and we pour on the religious sweat to try to get ourselves through a complicated life and situation and circumstances. Or we're hardwired by the Holy Spirit to rest and to wait and to be still and know that he is God and that he's going to return. And Isaiah opens up a beautiful picture of the one true God, the unique God of Israel, who is even more clarified. The focus even becomes more clear in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is an Old Testament book written a long time ago that talks about Jesus Christ. Isaiah, when he was on the scene prophesying, it was around 750 B.C., 750 years before Jesus would come, and Isaiah got it just right, talking about the specifics about Emmanuel, God is with us, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We'll end with that verse, but he also talks about Jesus coming, and by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. So there are some great prophecies here to connect ourselves to Christ and his coming. We're going to look over the next several weeks, by the way, at um, three other Old Testament books of the Bible that have Advent prophecies. But this morning is Isaiah. It's 66 chapters long, and we're going to do a little bit of a Bible survey or a book survey through Isaiah just to get the, the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that's here. And, you know, I leaned very heavily. Let me say this up front. I leaned very heavily on a chapter in a book written by Pastor Mark Dever. Mark Dever wrote a a wonderful two-volume series called The Message of the Old Testament and The Message of the New Testament. It's where he preached through every book of the Bible in one sermon each time and made that one chapter of this two-volume series. And if you ever wanted a good Bible series, a good Bible survey series, it's The Message of the Old Testament, The Message of the New Testament, Promises made and promises kept is kind of this series. 
and it's outstanding. It makes Jesus the centerpiece of every book of the Bible, as it should be. And he is definitely the centerpiece of the book of Isaiah. This is a a book that can be split up into two sections. One through 35 is sort of doom and gloom. (laughs) And then you have chapters 40, which is the reason of hope. And so you sort of have some doom and gloom coming early on in those chapters. And then 40 through 66 is reason of hope. And then right in the middle is a story. Right in the middle of the book of Isaiah, you have chapters 36 through 39, which is a dramatic event. And that's an event where King Sennacherib from, you know, the evil, dark world of Syria at that time had come through and basically gobbled up the northern kingdom and steamrolled all of the different fortified cities of Palestine and was standing 200,000, you know, armed forces around Jerusalem in the southern kingdom ready to charge in if King Hezekiah against Sennacherib. And we're going to talk about that later on as we're surveying through. But that's the story part of this book of the Bible. The rest is poetry and prophecies and poetry and prophecies. And that's the book of Isaiah. And you know what? Let me just say this up front. Isaiah is a very tough book of the Bible. This is just true confession time. It's a complicated uh, book of the Bible. It's not really precise chronology. It's not really chronological, but it's historically chronological. But Isaiah kind of bounces around to make points. Have you ever tried to read the book of Isaiah and you get lost a little bit? Well, that's because it's a confusing book. But you know why I think it's so chaotic and confusing? Because it's talking about our chaotic and confusing world. And what Isaiah wants to do is he wants to make this main point. The world that this southern kingdom was living in, that world was a mess. And it was headed for a whole lot of judgment and a whole lot of righting of wrongs. And really the one true and only hope for anyone in this messed up world is Jesus Christ. And in our Advent prophecy, it's Jesus Christ who came in the form of a man. Isaiah seven fourteen, Emmanuel, God is with us. Our only hope. And you might be sitting here and thinking, you know, I live, uh, I live in my own messed up world. And you know what? We do. We live in a chaotic society around us. And we have a lot of messiahs that are dangled out in front of us that are offered to us as our reason for hope, as a way for us to get through our chaotic world or our chaotic personal life. But there's only one true messiah that can fix our lives. That's Jesus. And that's the point of Isaiah. Basically, Isaiah is trying to bring the southern kingdom of Judah into focus and say, you've been trusting wrong messiahs. You've been placing your hope in the wrong direction and you need to place your hope in the one true God, a God who is going to judge this world, but who's trustworthy and who has revealed himself in a messiah. All of The socio-political chaos is going to be reconciled. All of the, the injustices, all of the lack of peace is going to be made right. And it's all going to turn on one person, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the message of Isaiah, and that's the message for you. You're either working hard to try to fix your own life with your own messiahs, or you're willing to lay back and trust the Lord. 
Well, like I said, just to give you a little bit of a, a running start, um, you, if you know some of your Bible survey, you know that Israel split in 722. You have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, you have Judah, and then you have the capital city, which is Jerusalem. And that's where we find Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who came on the scene when King Uzziah died. Isaiah 6, verse 1, the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah walked into the temple and saw the Lord high and lifted up. The reason God revealed himself at that time is because Uzziah was basically the Ronald Reagan president of of the southern kingdom. And when he died, there was a huge leadership vacuum that happened. Uh, Uzziah had basically brought the southern kingdom back up to prominence. It had been 200 years since Solomon's reign, and Solomon's reign was one of wealth and riches, and Uzziah had sort of led the, the nation back in that way. Assyria was a growing sort of enemy foe in the northeastern uh, part, and they were coming on strong, but they were preoccupied with other nations. Egypt, which had been a threat in the past, was faltering to the south. But Uzziah died, and suddenly people began to look around, and they were looking for leadership. And instead of, at that crossroads, turning to God, they turned to sin. That's what people do in times of crisis. And actually, as Assyria grew in power, they got afraid, and they got so afraid of Assyria that they begin to make this sort of vassal treaty with them and say, look, we'll pay you if you'll protect us. Then they begin to send leaders over to Assyria, and Assyria was kind of coming into the nation of God's promised land, and they were beginning to, to adopt worship styles and say, look, as long as we can keep you at bay, we'll worship like you worship, and we'll worship your gods, and, and we'll make these concessions. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying, saying, this is wrong, this is sinful, and it's ugly before God. And you need to see that the world is chaotic and God is the only solution to your problem. King Hezekiah comes on the scene um, after Uzziah. You have Ahaz and then you have King Hezekiah. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1, it says, A vision of Isaiah the son of Amaz which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, then you have Ahaz, and then you have Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the godliest um, kings, but then Ahaz, um, Ahaz's son, he had made that vassal treaty and had entered into the sin of Assyria. You know, actually, God, he, he saw that the nation of, of, of Israel, the, the Jew, that Judah was so sinful that he actually condemned them early in this book. Look at Isaiah one twenty one. It says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. They had fallen pretty far. If you go back to chapter 1, look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. He talks about them being a vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 and how God had planted this vineyard vineyard in 5 verse 2. He had made choice vines. But then he said in verse 4, but more was there to do. What more was there to do for the vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes or bad fruit? What's going on? And it was that there was compromise under both kings, under Ahaz, but even under Hezekiah, as we're going to see. They were unfaithful. You've heard of uh, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7, this strong condemnation. How vile and gross was their sin of idolatry going against the Lord? Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And then at the end of verse 6, a polluted garment, literally minstrel rags. I mean, it's just really, really bad in terms of the iniquities. Verse 7 it says, for you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So God's face was, was hidden from them. But you know what? It's important for you to understand something. Throughout this book, you're going to see a lot of judgment. There's a lot of oracle judgments and declarations against Judah. But this is God's way to try to shake a nation free from their bondage of sin. You know, hard preaching oftentimes is what it takes and is necessary to soften the heart. It just is. And sometimes you've got to be very straightforward and, and very, very potent and clear in terms of how sinful a person or a nation really is. And these people were really, really sinning and turning away from the Lord. And God wanted to pursue them in love. I think oftentimes we want to reflect upon our love for God. You ever survey the worship songs, you know, that either we sing here or other places? It's a lot about our love for God, but really... Isaiah is bringing an emphasis of God's love for us, for his people who are sinners. And so the important thing to remember in the book of Isaiah is that this is about God's pursuant love of his people, even through judgment at times. He's trying to shake people away from their false messiahs to move them towards the Messiah. That's our proposition, moving from our messiahs to the Messiah. It's three phases and The first phase is the problem, the problem that Judah was facing, the problem. We've already read that they were rebelling in Isaiah 1, uh, 2, and 4. Look at Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, the first Messiah that they were trusting in, the first Messiah that they were trusting in were foreign kings. Now, you might say, what's the problem with that? What's wrong with trusting in foreign kings if you need help? Now, you remember, Assyria was sort of oppressive and coming after Judah and was going to overthrow Jerusalem. They're eight miles outside of the city. Well, what's wrong with turning to foreign kings? Well, you got to remember, this was God's holy nation, and God had designed Israel and the Israelites and the Hebrew children to be separate from foreign nations. To not trust in horses or chariots or foreign leaders, but to trust in God. And the mindset of Israel is really the same mindset as the New Testament church. 
It would be like if we were being beat up by the government and they were coming in and dragging us off to prison and, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and other cult religions came knocking and said, look, if we all stood together and made an alliance, then the government would leave us alone. That's the kind of compromise that Israel was making. And they're saying, we're going to syncretize with these foreign kings so that we can be safe. Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord, yet he is wise and brings disasters. Verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hands, the hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. In other words, if you want it that way, you're going to fall and perish with them. So that's the first problem was trusting in politics, trusting in the wrong messiahs, which are trusting in politics or trusting in foreign kings. A king uh, is an anointed one, which means Messiah. That's where I'm getting this idea of trusting in false messiahs. They were trusting in the wrong political leaders, but really it's at a spiritual level where they were trying to get dual citizenship with God's nation and other ungodly pagan nations. It's like making a deal with the devil in Revelation chapter 20 in the millennial kingdom when God, when Christ sets up the new heavens and the new earth for a thousand years. You can read about it in Revelation 20 verse 7. There's going to be a crowd, probably the offspring or grandchildren or great, great, great grandchildren that are there during the millennial reign, which will team up with Satan and ultimately be obliterated by God. It's the same kind of sin that was going on in Israel. Well, secondly, not only did they trust in politics or bad politics, but secondly, they trusted in other religions. If you, if you lock arms with different religious leaders, then you're ultimately going to start practicing their false religion. And that's exactly what Judah began to do. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 8 talks about this. Again, it's a complicated book. Sometimes you have to flip around to get the main themes uh, together. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to do what their own fingers have made. They were involved in verse 6 with fortune tellers or soothsayers. And the children were striking hands or striking deals with foreigners or bargaining with them, locking in. It's the same New Testament um, Warning, 1 Corinthians 15, that says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Can I just say that I think it's so important for us to be careful with whom we grow deep with. You know, the people that you make the deepest friendships with will influence the way you think and feel about life more than anything else. You have to be warned about that. And you say, well, what about evangelism? What about reaching out to my neighbor? Well, that's important to do. But when you bond at the deepest level and you become dependent and reliant upon each other, then it's easy to suddenly confuse their spirituality as something that's true. And all of a sudden you can be wooed into falsehood. I've seen it happen again and again. And I've seen people say, look, hey, I'm trying to reach the person for the loss. But when you begin to name your children after that person, it's gone to a deeper level. And then you can be swayed away into false religion. False religion is is on the attack 
just like it was in the days of Judah. Uh, the other day I was on a YouTube with a couple of the kids and watching some sort of kids thing. You know, my kids will watch me type on the computer and they'll say, Dad, you know, click on this YouTube video. We want to watch it. So I clicked on it. And the commercial that went on the YouTube video before it was fully loaded was about this mom that was in a kitchen and she's, you know, making dinner and hustling and bustling around the kitchen and sort of survival mode. But she's got her kids and her kids are in order and, you know, there's a blog that you can go to and she's got the perfect sort of arts and craft home and everything's just so and, you know, looks just like our household. Anyway, but, you know, no, it's this sort of ideal situation and she's introducing herself and the very last thing she said right at the end, she said all this good stuff and then she said, and I'm a Mormon. I thought, that is, that is wrong. That's just, really, I mean, can I just say it? It's just Satan's agenda, you know, to get into the home. I mean, the Mormons will try to draw you in with their ideal life and setting and network. And it's, it's promoting another Jesus, a false Jesus, a false religion that will draw your heart away. And it's the same kind of idolatry and it's the same kind of false Messiah stuff that the land of Judah was dealing with people fall into these these pride trips. And it, it works even in the church where people will make their own ministries into idols. Where you can take your focus off of worshiping Christ and say, I do this in the church and that's my thing that makes me happy. And that can become your own religion and that can be pride as well. Speaking of trusting in yourself, they move from trusting in politics to trusting in other religions to trusting in themselves. Trusting in themselves. Isaiah 22 is where they were were sort of, you know, boning up their army. They were trying to, to bolster, you know, their own protection, which was a good thing. They were fortifying their city. They were, they were bringing in troops and uh, in verse 8. Um, it talks about how in the day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. They were identifying their breaches and they were building up their weapons. It says you collected the, the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You did all these things. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Look at this in verse 11. Very significant. But... Isaiah 22, verse 11, but you did not look to him who did it. You see that? You did all this stuff to make yourself safe, but you forgot to look to God. That's the wrong attitude. That's that's works-based religion rather than Advent Christianity where you're waiting for the Lord's provision and the Lord's help. It says, you didn't look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Anyway, Isaiah 29, um, verse 10, it also talks about how they were staying away from the word of God and how God actually judged them because they were not trusting in God's compass for life. Life And verse 10 talks about how the children of Israel were falling into a deep sleep. They were, their eyes were closed. Their heads were in the sand. Verse 11, the Bible was, it was as if it was sealed up to them. And, and it was as if someone would say, read this. And he says, verse 11, I cannot, for it is sealed. I, I can't read it. The book's not, it's not open to me anymore. And that's the state that the children of Israel were in. 
ever find yourself in that state where you've, you've drunk the world's wine too much? You're looking for your own solutions to fix your chaotic world? You're trying to fix the politics of the nation. You're trying to fix the politics of the municipality. You're trying to fix the the politics and the chaos in your own family. And you're looking to false messiahs to help you out. Your own sort of ways to figure out your life. You know, if this person would just do this or this would just fall into place, then I'll be okay. If this would just come through or happen, then my life will get fixed. And it's a series of false messiahs that you can bow down to and you forget to look to God as you're trying so hard to fix your life. And you forget to look to the word of God. And all of a sudden, the word of God, it's as if it's a shut book to you. It's not even something that's going to help you at all. And that's what Isaiah is warning the people against. Well, not only did they do that, they trusted in wrong leaders or bad leaders. Isaiah chapter 3. You know, they trusted in Ahaz. They should never have done that. They should never have made a treaty with Assyria. They should never have sought support from Egypt. And what did God do? Isaiah 3 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, support of water, mighty man and the soldier, judge and prophet, diviner and elder, captain of fifty, the man of rank, the skillful magician, expert in charms. And I will, verse 4, make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Verse 5, and the people will oppress one another. It's like if you want to go about it this way and follow the leadership into wrong treaties, guess what? You're going to oppress each other. All your leadership's going to crumble. If you want to go down with Egypt's leadership, then go down with them. Should have done what uh, the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 5, 29, when the Sanhedrin, the, the religious system of the day, was saying, listen, don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Peter say? We will obey God rather than man. Right? That's the point. I'll tell you what, if the leadership here ever goes the wrong way, you follow the Bible. You follow God's word. You know, if if our government forbids us to do what the Bible commands us to do, we're going to follow God's word. We are. That's, That's what we're supposed to do. We're called to follow God's leadership because we know him personally personally that's why i you know i really i've got a a strong heart of compassion for any person who's ever participated in having an abortion but i can never vote in a direction that supports abortion because it's 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 disobeying the word of god i want to obey god's word god's law you know that's that's just that's the heart of a Christian, And when you begin to compromise in subtle ways and you, you choose a bad choice over against a worse choice, it's a, it's a quick digression. And the world will hold out lust and fame and, and all kinds of things uh, to make you happy. But really, they're just cheap substitutes for the real satisfaction that comes in the Savior that is uncovered in Isaiah. Well, we're going to start to look at this Savior now. We've seen the problem. Now let's look at the solution. The solution is trusting God. And again, this is a God who brings major judgment on the world, on Judah, on Jerusalem, and on all of the world. Judgment is promised here. But guess what? 
This is tough love and this is the God who does not wink at sin. He will bring justice to sin, but he also pursues people to believe in him. He's a rescuer. He's a deliverer in the midst of a chaotic world. And I want to start with Isaiah 40. God holds himself up as someone who is very different than the idols that they were worshiping. He says, to whom, verse 18 of Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman, cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast for it silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See, God introduces himself again to Judah to say, listen, snap out of it. Wake up. Stop thinking that the world is what will save you. These messiahs are empty. They're false. They're man-made. Have you ever made something for yourself? Have you ever stood back like Nebuchadnezzar and said, look what I've done? Isaiah's going, you don't understand. God, he stands above the circle of the earth. He's the Lord over the cosmic universe and how all of that, that infinite creation swirls together and in the midst of the creation you have a planet called earth where there are people on it and amongst those people there are special people and they're found in this nation called Judah and guess what we're going to talk specifically to a city in Judah and that God loves you that's what Isaiah is saying and guess what it's even going to clarify more in the face of Jesus Christ Isaiah 6, speaking of Jesus, John 12 is where John is quoting Jesus, talking about Isaiah 6. And Jesus pretty clearly is saying, I was him. I was the one that Isaiah saw in the temple. Isaiah 6, where the, the train of Christ's robe is filling the temple and it's filling with smoke as the foundations shake and the seraphim are are covering their face and flying and covering their feet to symbolize God's holiness and repeating again and again that God is thrice holy. That's the vision of the God that we serve who brings order to chaos from chaos. He's the solution. How big is this God? Just turn in your Bibles to um, Isaiah 13. I want to do an exercise with you where you just look at the subheadings. You know, in your Bible, I'm trusting that you have some subheadings here. This is where God is promising Judah that he's going to wipe out pagan nations. And this happened historically, and it also alludes to the day of the Lord. Okay? This is God's judgment of the nations. And it's just chapters 
13 through 24 in the book of Isaiah. That's what's going on here. He says, uh, by the way, I'm going to judge Babylon, which was this growing force. You know, you have Syria that was at the top of its game, but Babylon was coming as a, a tidal wave force behind it. They actually had already made inroads into Judah with their own envoys, their own messengers, and there were treaties being made with Babylon against Assyria. That was also part of the trusting foreign kings. Well, God was going to wipe Babylon out for that. You have judgment on Babylon and punishment that's coming there. Then you have in chapter 14, verse 24, uh, an oracle or judgment against Assyria and then against Philistia, verse 28, and then chapter 15 against Moab, and then chapter 17 against Damascus, which was inhabited by paganism at that time, and then 18 against Cush, and then 19, chapter 19 against Egypt, and then, and then uh, chapter 20 against Cush and Babylon again, and then in chapter 22... Jerusalem, Jerusalem also is going to come under judgment. And then you come to chapter 24, we wrap it all up with the day of the Lord. How big is our God? Our God is big enough to destroy the world with water. Remember that? And we have promised judgment in 2 Peter chapter, uh, it was the book of 2 Peter, where it says that the world will be consumed with fire. 2 Peter chapter 3. Isaiah 24 again, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. You want to read about what that looks like. Look at Revelation chapter 19 where Christ comes on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood as the Alpha and the Omega who is slaying the nations with the word of his, of his voice and and with, with the breath coming out of him, just speaking judgment on nations, and they are slain immediately. It's a picture of a bloodbath. Verse 3 of Isaiah 24, The earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Judgment. Why do we have these scenes again? Well, the world is chaotic. And our God is a judge, and he's also a deliverer. That's our God. Jesus Christ is both lion and lamb, and we need both. We need God to bring judgment. We need Jesus Christ, God in Christ, to come and rescue us as his lamb. Let me give you a picture of deliverance right in the, the middle of this book. It's the story, for those of you who are into stories, um, the story part in Isaiah is beginning in Isaiah chapter 36. Look at the top. This is a picture of deliverance, and it will lead us right into a vision of Christ. But Isaiah 36, you have Hezekiah, who's the king of Judah at that time. He's the godly king. They're surrounded by 200,000 troops that have just steamrolled through all of fortified Palestine. And they are eight miles outside of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. So you have evil Sennacherib. And he's coming in to finish off God's people. And he, he does it in a mocking tone, which is really the worst way to go about going against God's people. You don't mock God, but that's what he does. In verse 13, um, one of... Sennacherib's leader, Rabshakeh, 
stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, which that's significant. They were trying to say, look, don't speak in Hebrew because we don't want all of our people to be freaked out. Can you just speak in Arabic or speak in whatever language you speak in as Assyrians? Just don't speak in Hebrew. And so, so anyway, he speaks in a loud voice. And I think that sort of provoked this kind of speaking and mocking, which really ramped up the wrath against them. It says, hear the words of the great king of Assyria. Verse 14, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This, king will not, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah fool you. Come over into our world. Trust us. Verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your own peace with me. Come out to me. It's the world's allure. Come out to me. We'll keep you safe. You can eat. You can drink. You can drink and eat of the fig tree. You can drink our wine. You can drink our water. Verse 16. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nation delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hey, who can stand up to Sennacherib? That's what's going on. It's like the mockers of, you know, Goliath against God's nation where David stood up and said, I I come in the name of the living God. This is that moment. And what happened? Well, in chapter 37, 21, the Lord begins to speak back and say, look, you should not mess with me. Verse 23, whom have you mocked and reviled against? You've come against the Holy One of Israel. And then in Isaiah 37, verse 36, this is what happened. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down a hundred and eighty-five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. It'd be like half of Anchorage wiped out. Just dead bodies. That's the God who is that powerful that we trust, that you trust, to figure out your world for you. That's the God who loves you and pursues you. He's that powerful. He's that defender of the righteous. Now, how do we trust this lion who's also a lamb? Well, you have to trust the sharpened solution. And that is trusting in Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ, the theme of him, sort of this Advent prophecy time where we're talking about Jesus coming. He emerges as the only hope in the world that's chaotic. Where you have troops, where you have alliances, where you have all kinds of temptations crowding in. False messiahs all around. Wicked idolatry. You, have, you need the death angel to come in and wipe out 185,000 troops. It's that kind of sort of chaos that you have to say, I need Jesus as my only savior, as my only solution. Jesus comes as a Messiah King, Isaiah 28. I know this is quite a bit of a Bible study, but I figure how many times are you going to go through the whole book of Isaiah, right? Never. Okay. Isaiah 28, look at verse 16. It's talking about Jesus. Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion. Sound familiar? A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah 32, flip over a couple pages. 
Let's look at Jesus again. Verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. This is Jesus. It's continuing to build the scene. Isaiah 11 is where Jesus um, quoted of himself. In Luke chapter 4 in the temple, he was quoting of himself. Isaiah 11 as the anointed king. The ones who would bind up the brokenhearted. Who would heal the sick. Saying, I am he, I'm the unique king of kings anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus not only came as this king, as this lion, but also as the servant. Look at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will will not grow faint or be discouraged. He's going to bring justice to the coastlands. This is Christ. And then Isaiah 49 Isaiah 49, verse 3. You are my servant. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, the deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. Turn over, to, turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. I didn't have this in all of my notes, but I have to go here. Look at this, verse 6. My goodness, I can't believe I missed this. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Powerful text about the Messiah. It's not enough just to rely on God in general, okay? Do we understand that? Even in the Old Testament, it's clear that that all of the socio-political, economic, and spiritual, most importantly, all of those problems were, were going to turn on an individual, on a coming anointed king, not just another king, but the one unique Savior King Messiah, and that's to whom the Old Testament believer looked, and it's to whom the New Testament believer looks, and we understand that he is our one true and living hope. It's Jesus Christ. The point of the book of Isaiah, the increase of the government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Do you see the hope infused in these verses with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right, let's turn, uh, turn to Isaiah 50, and then we're going to look at Isaiah 53, obviously. Isaiah 50, this is just an allusion, verse 6, to Jesus on the cross. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and spitting. Wow, this is Old Testament looking to the cross, that under Roman persecution, there would be crucifixion. 
And yet, this Old Testament prophetic text is getting the crucifixion perfectly right. He was, verse 14, his appearance was so marred, Isaiah 52, 14, beyond human semblance and his form, that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And then Isaiah 53, who is believed, who is heard from us, verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. Verse 3, He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. People hid their faces from him. He was, verse 4, esteemed and stricken. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, were healed by his stripes. Verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was... Put, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days. Verse 11, he's the righteous one, my servant. There's more to be said there. But just as John, we read earlier, was in a vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and was weeping, saying, I'm not worthy of this God, this lion God, this God who is going to wipe out the nations, this God who sees my sin, I'm not worthy. And then he was told, turn around, there's one who is worthy to break open the seals. And you're thinking, he's going to see the lion on the throne breaking open the seals. And instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. And the lamb is the one who opened the way to God. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who gave entrance and access to worship the one true and living God. He came not only as a Messiah King, but also as a servant. And then Jesus is Messiah King and servant as one. Last verse, Isaiah seven fourteen. I say it's the last Isaiah verse. We've got to harmonize this with Matthew. I told you I'd get to the Advent prophecy. This is it. All of that was prologue to Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you believe you need Emmanuel? You know, one good thing about taking a huge amount of history in one sort of snapshot sermon One thing that you really can gain from doing that is how chaotic the world really is. I think when when you go up 30,000 feet and you get a big lay of the land as to how sinful our world really can be and how chaotic it can be, it really humbles us to be able to say, we need a Savior. Isaiah 66, "To to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, the one who trembles at my word. Are you at that place? Are you in that Advent posture where you're waiting for the Lord? Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21. This is where the birth of Christ was announced. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Speaking of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. You know, you're either working to get your life right, working to make your religion work and your life work, or you're resting 
in Christ alone. Let's bring this to a close with a few applications. Number one, the point is to move from religious work to expectant waiting. And if you're willing to do this, this is the answer to everyone's trust problem. People are trusting in wrong things. You've got to move to expectant waiting, trusting in the Christ who's coming back. Number two, the spirit of Advent season in this time, meditate on how much God loves you and pursues you over against how much we think we love him. Now, we do love God, and it's great to sing songs about loving God. Don't hear me wrong on that, right? But the gospel is not a self-esteem gospel. When we sing, it's not, the point isn't to pump ourselves up about how well we're doing spiritually. The point is to say, Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You are thrice holy. You know the end from the beginning. You're that big, and I'm going to trust you. And that's when the joy floods in the heart, when you let go and you trust the living God. Number three, like the people of Judah, do you believe the world has a built-in desire for some individual to be their Messiah? The people of Judah did it. They, they knew there was someone who would come. And I think that in our Christmas culture, there are a lot of people who feel very depressed and hopeless because all of a sudden, something about the Christmas music and the gospel message and you know the Advent season and all of the holiday spirit, there's something in the image of people made in the image of God that opens a little heart, heart vacuum up. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it happens in your own heart, but... The only satisfaction that can be found is Christ. We say, yeah, the only solution is the Prince of Peace. No amount of family connecting and and gifting and all of that, and that's wonderful, but no amount of that will fill the void that is in all of our hearts. And our whole society opens itself up in a season, and we should be able to communicate that there's a Messiah, the one true Messiah who's come who can fill the void in your life. Number four, will you speak about our Messiah King who came as a servant? Will you do that this holiday season? This is what we are commanded to do. And so let's go for it during the Advent holiday. Let's tell people about Jesus, the the message of the Bible. The light of the knowledge of the face of Jesus, or the, night of the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in one place, in the face of Jesus Christ. And we've seen his face, and so we need to reflect that to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the glory that's been shown in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the book of Isaiah, and we pray that, Lord, this has not just been an an exercise in going through a big, complicated book, but instead it's been an encounter with the living God. We thank you, God, that you are bigger and greater and grander than we are. And, Lord, thank you for this majestic book, but, Lord, ultimately, thank you for your majestic Son, Jesus Christ. You fill our needs every day, and, Lord, when we're flat on our backs, we know that we can only look up and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.